0: Good morning. Great to see you. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here, part of our preaching team, and uh, really glad that you're here with us. And uh, this is kind of a cool season, as Josh said, as we celebrate Advent. And one of the things that makes this series uh, unique for us is that we're actually doing it kind of in conjunction with our kids' ministry and our student ministry. So uh, on Sundays, uh, when we're here talking about peace, they're in the kids' rooms talking about peace. And so as you pick up your kids, as you pick up your grandkids, as you interact, uh, you can have some conversations perhaps this week about what would it look like uh, for us to lean into the peace that God offers in Jesus. We're also kind of synced up with students and student schedules a little bit different uh, this time of year, uh, but in some of the weeks that they are actually meeting, uh, we're having these same conversations. So it's really kind of a neat time to sync up as a church and look at these uh, traditional things that Advent really points to of hope and peace and joy. And love. So, uh, need a little uh, class participation here. So, how many of you have already sent out or are planning to send out Christmas cards this year? How many of you? Uh, show of hands, nice and high, nice and high. Okay, a few of you. How many of you have already started getting Christmas cards? Uh, in the mail you've been getting these yes and all these smiling people and their kids or their grandkids or their dogs or their grand dogs or whatever it is I think the funny ones are the ones where you're like I don't even know who sent me this because they're not on it it's just like their grandkids and you're like what do I do with this who is this person Um, those are always kind of funny but that that tradition of sending Christmas cards you know isn't hasn't been around forever. Um, And so I did some research on this. This is actually kind of fascinating is that whole thing started in 1843 when Sir Henry Cole commissioned the first Christmas card in London. He commissioned an artist to make a thousand copies. That's a lot. I don't know that most of you are probably sending out a thousand Christmas cards, but he commissioned that. And here's what this Christmas card, uh, this first Christmas card looked like. Here's a, a picture of it a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you. And this was kind of an innovative thing. And uh, people thought, wow, that's really cool. People also thought this was very controversial. This this card caused an uproar in London because we'll actually highlight and, and circle it here because in that circle, a mom is giving wine to her kid. People thought, this doesn't exactly fit the spirit of Jesus. And so that was a very controversial sort of thing. And, and from there, in 1843, the tradition just started booming. So by, 18, by the 1880s, one card designer, Louis Prang, he started producing over 5 million cards per year. Here's one of his best selling cards. Uh, the. Uh, March of the Frogs, I don't know, what the heck does that mean? I don't know, like, like, aren't you glad you don't get that in the mail? That's just super weird. Some of you I know are like frog people, you have frog decorations all over your house, so Louis Prang, he's your guy, but, but he, uh, he made this big market. Uh, Hallmark got into the mix, then in 1913, how many of you love Hallmark movies? You know, kids, Hallmark movies, before that, they actually have cards. They have greeting cards. And Hallmark started in 1913 really to produce Christmas cards. And uh, I want to show you here in just a moment the best-selling Hallmark Christmas card of all time, all right? 34 million copies of this Christmas card have been bought and sent out all over the world for Christmas over the years. Here, Here you go. See, that just shows all the difference in personalities. Because some of you were like, oh, that's so sweet. And others of you were like, 34 million of that? Ugh, like, so, anyway, we're all different, but apparently a lot of people like that, and uh, it's, it's awfully cute. And uh, the presidents of the United States now sent out Christmas cards. That began in 1953 with Dwight Eisenhower. He was the first one to do it, and he started sending out some serious ones and some funny ones. Here's one that he sent out during his presidency. Uh, that's kind of fun, and uh, so so this tradition has just been going. It's been going like crazy. Uh, there are now today in the United States over two billion Christmas cards sent every year. That's just amazing. Two billion. Only 15% of those cards—this won't surprise you—are purchased by men. Men are like, yeah, I'm already bored. I don't know what you're talking about, but I would never do any of this stuff. And when you think about these cards, because now now the Christmas cards that we get a lot of times are family pictures and sort of things like that, and a lot of them have sayings on them. You know, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, Feliz Navidad. But one of the most common phrases is peace on earth, peace on earth. You see this on the Christmas cards. You see this on banners. I was driving into Santan Mall the other day and it had one of these kind of temporary electronic signs. You know, it said, Merry Christmas, peace on earth. I don't know if that was just to try to keep the Black Friday people calm. You know, hey, remember, peace on earth, peace on earth. You know, why you fight over your televisions and stuff at Best Buy, but, but peace on earth where does this phrase peace on earth come from well it comes from the passage that we just read in luke chapter 2 verse 14 it says glory to god in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased peace on earth that refrain comes out a lot during this time of year and so we thought that it would feel right during this sermon to look at peace peace so here's what i want to look at uh, from this passage and from some others, is, is peace. What it's not, what it is, who it's for, and how you get it. Peace. What it's not, what it is, who it's for, how you get it. That's where we're going to go. So let's pray and uh, ask God to give us peace. Father, that is our heart's desire, that we would experience peace. The kind of peace that Jesus brought when he first came, And we pray that we would begin to get tastes of the kind of peace he'll bring when he comes again. And so God, would you use your word to help us to understand uh, what it is that could give us peace, what the great barrier is to us experiencing it, and help us to um, even today have be a day where we experience peace with you through Christ, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So the, angels, the, the angel first shows up to the shepherds and announces, this is what we read in chapter 2, beginning in verse 10, "'The angel said to them, "'Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord.'" And then in verse 13, not just one angel appears, but a multitude of the heavenly host, thousands perhaps, uh, hundreds of thousands, we don't know exactly what constitutes a multitude, but it's a lot, lots and lots of angels, and they are saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Here's the question for us today, what, when they were announcing peace at the coming of the Savior, who's Christ the Lord. What was that meaning? And what wasn't it meaning? So that's the first thing we want to look at is, is peace. What it's not. What it's not. There's a couple of things to understand as we re- look at the rest of Luke's gospel that, that make clear what these angels were not announcing with the first coming of Christ. And the first thing they were not announcing was international political peace. That's not what this was an announcement of. This was not an announcement that wars would be over. This was not an announcement that nations would quit fighting with each other. This was not an announcement of some sort of geopolitical, you know, peace in the Middle East kind of thing. That's not what was being promised. And the reason we know that is because when we read later on in the book of Luke, here's what we find in Luke chapter 21. Jesus is talking about the future and and the people ask him, teacher, when will these things be? And Jesus said, when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. In other words, the first coming of Jesus was not going to eradicate war. It wasn't going to eradicate battles between nations. The second coming of Jesus will. He'll he'll put all of that and it'll all be over. And there will be peace on earth. But his first coming, he said, listen, this is necessary. This is going to happen. Nations are going to rise up against nation as long as this world is still fallen. So, what is the peace not? Well, it's not about international politics. The second thing it's not is it's not about circumstantial tranquility. That's what a lot of us think of when we think of peace, don't we? Let's just take it peaceful, deep breath with me, will you? (sighs) Yes, and what do you picture when you think of this peace? My family's getting along. My husband is rising up and calling me blessed. Um, my, My kids actually thought about what I'd want for Christmas. Oh, this is, it's so peaceful, it's so relaxed. I feel the stress flowing out of my shoulders That's what a lot of us think of when we think of peace. And that's not what is being promised here. In the first coming of Jesus, Jesus didn't come to bring that kind of peace. Here's how we know. If you fast forward 10 chapters into Luke chapter 12, uh, there's a remarkable thing here. This should be read every Christmas, but it never gets read. Luke 12, beginning in verse 51. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No. <laughs> you should put that on your Christmas card, right? With your family, right? And they're all fighting each other, right? And put that. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I did not. Jesus says this I tell you, no, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house, there will be five divided three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son. Son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Some of you are like, did Jesus have a video of my Thanksgiving? How did he know about this? This is what Jesus is saying. Listen, following Jesus might not make things easier circumstantially. They might not create a kind of peace and tranquility between relationships because Jesus came with some strong claims that he's the son of God, that he came to forgive sinners who needed forgiveness, that he's the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the father but through him. And with those kinds of strong claims, there's going to be disagreements until he comes again. Now listen, get this, to be clear, there is a day coming when every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But until then, Jesus didn't come to bring that kind of circumstantial peace. So, so what are they talking about then here in verse 14? These angels. Peace on earth among those with whom he's pleased. What, what does this mean? Is this just symbolic? Like, well, you know, God came to like do good stuff. Is that kind of what it's saying? No, this is actually a concrete, specific peace. It's peace on earth. It's a real thing. It's a tangible thing. So then the question is, what is it? So that's our second thing, peace. What is it? Okay, it's not necessarily the end of wars in our lifetime. It's not necessarily all of our relationships being tranquil. What is it? There's a clue uh, to the answer in the story that comes right before this. See, see in Luke chapter 1, uh, the angel promises that Mary will have a baby. But in addition, in Luke chapter 1, uh, Mary's relative also is found to have a baby. And that was significant because she had tried to have a baby and couldn't have a baby. She was barren. And she ends up, this relative of Mary, ends up pregnant with the little boy who eventually will be John the Baptist. And John the Baptist's father is a is a prophet, he serves in the temple. And it says that he gives a prophecy at the end of chapter one of Luke. And so look at this prophecy that John the Baptist's father gives about John the Baptist. He says this, and you child, speaking of his son, John the Baptist, will be called prophet of the most high for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Huh. There's a way of peace. Peace is a destination. Peace is a real tangible place. How do you experience peace? Well, according to the verses just right before what we read in Luke 2.14, peace comes through the forgiveness of sins. Peace isn't necessarily, at least the way Jesus first brought it, about creating world order. It's not about all the relatives getting along. It's about sinners being forgiven and the hostility that you and I have with God being removed and made peaceful. Now, this should make sense to us if we understand some of the biblical story, because sin rebellion, disobedience of God, shattered peace. Uh, Josh mentioned a little while ago that, that the Hebrew word for peace is the word shalom. Shalom, that's just a fun word. Let's say it together, all right? Shalom. But, but let's say it with a little more heart, all right? Shalom, yeah, oh, that's good. All right, so shalom. Shalom is the Hebrew concept of peace, and the Hebrew concept of peace is this kind of full-orbed, idea that all your relationships are in order it's the idea shalom is like a fabric that is nicely weaved together I right? think of your best ugly Christmas sweater right and it's nicely woven together and and sin begins to kind of pull at the fabric and everything that was good and everything that was whole and everything that was right begins to unravel in the world when Adam and Eve disobey God Think about what Adam and Eve had, our first parents. Here's what they had uh, according to the book of Genesis in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And so I want to kind of illustrate this with these pictures. You've got Adam and Eve here. And uh, Adam and Eve first, their relationship with God was good. They had a good relationship with him. They had a close relationship with him. It says, it says in Genesis that they actually would walk with God in the cool of the day. I mean, most of us, we can't even fathom that, right? That kind of closeness, that kind of proximity, that kind of care. But that's what they had. They were part of naming the animals together, this kind of reigning and ruling with God. This relationship with God was beautiful. But also the relationship with one another was beautiful. They had this closeness with one another. Adam and Eve had this connection. They were, uh, they were one flesh, it says, They were saying, man, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. We're together, we're one, we're side by side, right? God takes Eve out of the rib, right? Not out of the the head to be over Adam and not out of the feet to be under Adam, but out of the side of Adam so that they could be side by side. And that's how it was. They were close. Their relationship with creation was good. You kind of symbolize this as an arrow facing the ground, that that they were to rule the creation and subdue it and cultivate it and work the garden. And maybe as significant as anything, their relationship with themselves was good. There's an amazing thing in Genesis 2. It says that they were naked and they felt no shame. Here's what that means. They were comfortable in their own skin. Now think about our world and think about your life. How are those four relationships? Is your relationship with God one where it's just so close it almost feels like he's right there walking with you in the cool of the day? Is your relationship with your loved ones, your closest friends, your parents, your spouse? Is, is that a, 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 an intimate, close relationship Nothing to hide, no need to impress one another, not trying to prove anything. Is that how it is? No. Our understanding of creation is all goofed up, right? Some people want to abuse creation. Some people want to worship creation. And the whole idea of of just how hard it is in this world to live in a fallen, broken world, it's really hard. And and we don't have this self-understanding where we're at peace with ourselves, do we? Where we're comfortable in our own skin. We're always kind of trying to jockey and trying to wonder, how do they think about me? We don't have this. And the question is, why? Right? So, if that's shalom, if that's this wholeness, if that's this flourishing, and we already saw that's not necessarily what Jesus came to bring the first time he came, but that is what he's going to restore us to the next time he comes, how did that all break? Well, here's the thing. It first broke with God. Adam and Eve saw that the one thing that God had told them not to do, they wanted to do. This is amazing. They lived in this garden that had everything you could ever want. God says, knock yourself out. It is incredible. Eat anything. Go anywhere. Do anything you want. It is absolutely an amazing paradise. Hey, just this just, just one thing. Just don't, just don't eat from this one tree. And that's what they wanted. And they ignored God. And they thought, eh, God can't really be trusted. God's holding out. And so in their hearts, it began to break. And they took of the fruit and they ate it. And that relationship with God was not whole anymore. Instead of walking with God closely in the cool of the day, now they're hiding from him. Well, then God shows up and says, well, what happened? Adam, what's the deal, man? Like, I told you not to do that. And Adam goes, well, wait a minute. It was the woman that you gave me, God. So now the relationship between husband and wife is broken, right? Not only is it broken with me and God, but now it's broken with me and the other people in my life. And then God puts a curse on it and says, listen, here's what's going to happen. Because of your sin, there's going to be this constant jockeying between men and women. Men are going to constantly try to oppress and try to abuse, and women are going to try to usurp. And instead of working side by side the way I made you, you're going to be jockeying for who's in charge. And the ground is cursed. There's thorns and there's thistles and work is difficult. And then you see at the end of all of this that instead of being naked and unashamed, they take fig leaves and they cover themselves because they are ashamed and they know they're not clean and they don't feel comfortable in their own skin. And that's where we are, isn't it? But but think here, think. Where did it begin? It didn't begin with rebelling against one another. It didn't begin with rebelling against creation. It began, all of this got broken by rebelling against God, by doing the one thing God told us not to do, by disregarding God, by ignoring God, by not doing the things that God says will lead to life and to flourishing and to wholeness and to shalom. And that's what sin is. Sin is breaking the rules. Sin is exalting yourself and your own wisdom above God's. Sin is thinking, I have a path for my life that's far better than God's. And as soon as we do that, it all falls apart. And so Zechariah in John 1 says, listen, you can't have the way of peace unless you have the forgiveness of sin. So what is the peace that these angels are announcing? that came in Christ when he first came, it's the forgiveness of sins. Jesus Christ came to save his people from their sins. That's why he came. Now, he will eventually set all things right. But he will do that after he's dealt with our biggest problem, our sin. So, peace. What it's not, it's not international politics, it's not circumstantial tranquility. What it is... It's the beginning of wholeness through forgiveness of sins. Third thing, who it's for, who it's for, who is this kind of peace for? This is one of the really cool things about this passage. Cause when we think of peace, like if you were to just kind of ask your friends, Hey, do you, what would it take for you to get peace in your life? Right? And they wouldn't be defining it the way I'm trying to define it here, right? But they would just be talking about kind of that feeling of peace, right? And and if if we said, hey, what would you have to do to go experience peace? Here's the reality. Everything you'd have to do to go experience peace, just about, would cost you money. Right? Because you'd go, I need to go on a vacation. Kauai. That would give me peace. Any of you ever been to Kauai? Those of you that have are like, yeah, that actually would give you peace, (laughs) like, because it's supposed to be amazing. I've I've never been there, but, right, it's not cheap to go to Kauai, right? Others of you would be like, you know what, I just, I need a, I need a spa day. Give me a good mani-pedi. A couple of you guys, I know that that's what you would want, right? But maybe it's a massage, maybe it's, right? Some of you are like, I just need to get away. Some of us would be like, you know what would give me peace? A nanny. (laughs) If I had an au pair, like that would be great. You know what? When I need peace? Because I don't want just short-term peace. I want long-term peace. And to have long-term peace, I need to have good education so that I can get a good job, so I can have the kind of money where I can have the things and I can pay for all of that stuff. And then I'll have peace. Listen, in any of that kind of way of constructing it, here's the thing. Peace is only available for who? The rich the powerful, those at the top. And that's actually not that different than the first century. There's a person mentioned in chapter 2, verse 1. We just read over his name every year, which feels appropriate, actually. He's a footnote in the story of the true king, but his name Caesar Augustus. One of the things that Caesar Augustus is famous for, besides this verse, is that he's the the Roman emperor that ushered in what's called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And this season that began with him and carried on for a few hundred years beyond him was this time where there was a common language in the Roman Empire, there was lots of roads and infrastructure, and this great uh, empire of the Roman Empire had peace, relatively speaking. But here's the thing, when you read the research on it, when you see how it actually worked, the only people that really had peace were the people at the top. The people in Rome who were rich, who were wealthy, who were powerful, that's who the peace of the Roman Empire was for. Look then at how different God's peace is. Let me ask you this, who is the person who delivers the Prince of Peace? What's she like? She's poor, she's unwed, she's a teenage mom, she's engaged to a poor carpenter husband. (laughs) And who are the people that hear about this savior who's coming first? Who, who, Who gets the announcement? Who's on the receiving end? Class, come on. Who? Shepherds. Shepherds. Spit it out. You got it. Your kids are over there. They're they're much more energetic than you are about this. Shepherds! Right? Actually, first they go, Jesus? Right? Because they just know that that's supposed to be the right answer. No, it's shepherds. It's shepherds. So get this. Who are the shepherds? They're poor. They're outcasts. They're dirty. They're smelly. A lot of shepherds were thought to be dangerous people that you wouldn't want to encounter if you were going on a journey because they might rob you. That's who God shows up for. Who is this piece for? It's not for the 1%. It's not for the powerful. It's not for the rich. It's not for those who kind of have figured it all out and gotten their education and have just limited access to have, you know, checked all the right boxes. No, 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 no. This is a piece for all kinds of people. And it's a peace for anyone who experiences the grace of God. That's what's intended by verse 14, where it says, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, the unfortunate part is the the way that's translated, peace among those with whom he's pleased, seems to be saying peace for those who have really earned it. But, But the other way you've maybe heard this translated, which I think is a more accurate translation is on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Who can get this peace? Not those who work really hard for it. Not those who can pay for it. Anyone on whom God will give his grace. Anyone who will receive this gift. The heights of society, the lows of society. This is for anyone who wants to experience the grace of God. Fourth thing then is peace. How do you get it? Peace. How do you get it? Well, there's an interesting thing, even just by the announcement of peace. The announcement of peace. Hey, I want to offer you peace. Assume something, doesn't it? If I say, hey, you can have peace with God, you start to go, well, wait. I don't feel like I'm at war with God. But you are. Ephesians says that we are children of wrath like the rest of mankind, that we are dead in our transgressions and sins, that we follow our own path, we follow our own way. And so first we get peace by admitting our hostility toward God. By admitting you have been like Adam and Eve. You've built your life on other things. You've ignored what God has told you to do. You've done things the way you want to do them. If we will turn from that, we can begin to have our sins forgiven. We can begin to be reconciled to God. But it's not just admitting that we have sinned. It's not just admitting that we've been hostile, but it's also embracing Jesus. And notice in verse 11 of chapter 2 how Jesus is described. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. Commentator Thabiti Anyabile says this, this is the only time in the gospels this phrase is used, Christ, Savior, Christ the Lord. It's the only time we see all the titles of Jesus brought together, Savior, Messiah, Lord. He is Savior and will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the Christ, The Messiah promised Israel, just stop there for a second. Just so you know, I know some of you that are newer to all this, uh, you might not know this, but actually Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? It wasn't like you pulled up to his house and the mailbox said, the Christs, you know? Christ is a title, it's a Messiah, the anointed one that the people were waiting for. He says, and most staggeringly of all, he's Lord, he's God, he's maker of all, he's ruler, Of all. This is who Jesus is. He is a Savior. He came to save His people from their sins. He came to forgive you. He came to make it right with God. He came to give you peace with God by trusting in Him. He's the Messiah. He was promised. He was awaited. We were longing for Him, just like we're longing for Him again. And He is Lord, which means you better do what He says. Because he reigns and he rules, and there is no better Lord to follow than the one who dies to give himself for you. Some people go, ah, calling Jesus Lord, that just sounds too mean. It sounds too oppressive. Jesus is Lord. Ugh. No, 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 no. Jesus is Lord. Jesus, the one who was born in poverty and in weakness and in frailty. The one who suffered, the one who died, the one who rose, so that we could have peace with God. That's ultimately what peace is. And here's the reality our lives are going to be broken, and they're going to be difficult, and they're going to be hard. And we're going to send out Christmas cards where we're going to look like we have our act together. Let's be honest. Those Christmas cards are like maybe the best few minutes of what might otherwise be a really hard life. And it's gonna be hard. As long as there's sin in the world, as long as there's rebels fighting against God. But we can have the beginnings of peace. We can experience the opening of shalom when we turn from our sin, we trust in Christ. You'll never have hope in this life. You'll never have peace in this life without Jesus. So turn and trust him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the peace that's available in Christ Jesus. I thank you that we can be made right with you through Christ, that if we will confess our sins, if we will believe that God, you raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And so I pray that today would even be a day of salvation for some in this room. God, that people would turn away from trusting in themselves, turn away from trying to find peace on their own, turn away from the ways we numb ourselves because we don't have peace, and instead that we would turn toward Christ, that you would forgive us, that you would begin to make us whole, and that you would begin to make us new. God, for those of us who have tasted your peace, who have tasted your shalom, but we've chased after other things, forgive us too, Recenter us, remind us of where our peace really comes from. We pray it in Christ's name.